Kat. And I'm Kurt, and you're listening to Cat and Kurt's TV Review. Welcome to episode 40. Long story. Got hunted. This week, we're discussing series 3, episode 11 of Doctor Who, Utopia, and season 3, episode 5 of Buffy, Homecoming. As always, we suggest you watch the episodes before you listen to the podcast. Also, if you haven't done so already, we you may want to listen to the first podcast to get an idea of our methodology. So, here we are with Utopia. And, uh, yeah, it was an interesting episode. Some unexpected things from my point of view. Um, yeah, I I think I said this on Twitter. I really, I've always liked this one. Mm-hmm. But it's one of those ones that I, if I can wax about my love for this episode for a second before we really get started, um, <laughs> I sure by all I means. I love it more each time I watch it um, because mm-hmm. I think it covers so much ground. I mean, you were kind of saying before we like through email like that there's a lot to talk about in this mm-hmm. one, um, but. And so, like, just thinking of all the different elements from the season that it starts to bring together, but it doesn't feel too cramped. You know, it doesn't mm. feel like I feel like the the pace and the energy and the characters and yeah. the drama and the action all work really, really well together. And you don't feel like you're getting this right. big like mythological info dump, even though that's kind of what you're getting. Um, right. And I think it's. it's I think it's easy to appreciate what's brilliant about something like Blink because the the concept is so sort of, you know, like the centerpiece, you know, of like the time yeah. travel and the angels. And, and it's easy to kind of point to what's great about it. But something like this, I think, is doing it, – it's just as complicated, but – it's doing so much that you don't necessarily realize that it's as complicated as it is. Yeah. Um, well, but you and never it's... feel like that when you're watching it. You just feel like this is a really well-paced thriller. Um, so anyway, yeah. I just think no, it's a really great bit of writing. No, I, I think that's interesting because I, and I wasn't even thinking along those lines um, before you just kind of said all that, but I, I have a couple of theories, but, but first of all, I would say like to sort of phrase, what you're trying to say in my own words, I would say it's, it's significant, but not weighty. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like it's, it there, there's a lot there to sort of deal with and think about, but it does, you don't, it, it almost, you, it doesn't have like a sense of, of its own grandiosity or anything. Right, you know what right. I mean? Like, like I think like you're saying, like there's definitely, you know, you can get something new every time, but you like can do that even without like feeling like, okay, I have to study this. You know what right, I mean? Like, right, yeah. like it's anyway. Um, but, but to your point about that, there's a lot of complexity and the pacing and all of that. What I think is interesting. And I think, I think maybe one of the reasons why, and we can talk about this as we sort of go through um, is because while you're, you, you sort of have two veins ha- running at the same time. Mm. And one of them is, is closing off things that have been, you know, open for a season. Yeah. Um, more than a season. Yeah. And, and, and giving you answers to questions that have sort of been just hovering and whatever. So you do get this sort of feeling of closure, particularly around Jack. 
um, and and all of that. Well, at the same time, or like with the other hand, or how you know whatever metaphor yeah. you want to use, um, opening up like a whole new can of worms yes. and ideas. Yeah. So yeah. so like it's it's almost like uh you know it's like when the doctor tells you to turn away so that he can do something that's painful in your other arm. You know, like like sure. yeah. look o- look over there <laughs> so I can stab you with this needle and you kind of have both of those things going on here in a way. I I think just that's, that's sort of what made me what I was thinking of when you were describing um, how the episode felt with you. And, and I want to, so mentioning Jack, I want to bring up Jack because as you yes. know, I've been waiting for this. Yeah. I was going to say demanding like, <laughs> you know, for his return, yeah. but, but that seems yes. kind of strange because I knew it was coming. I just didn't know when, and obviously it would be silly to demand something that happened years ago because we can't travel in time like they can. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, I, I think I, I mentioned before um, on the podcast that I had mentioned that I had watched the first season of Torchwood, which takes place between series two and three of um, Dr. Who. And so at the end of that season, first season of Torchwood, um, Jack just disappears and you yeah. hear the noise of the TARDIS. And yeah. now we know where he goes running off to. Um, and that is to the rift where the doctor has come to refill the gas tank, so to speak. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a little different than what you expect. It kind of seems in Torchwood, like he gets in the TARDIS from the, like the hub itself, whereas yeah. they kind of tweak it, but it's like, you know, that that's under they didn't necessarily know how they were going to stage it. They just knew, okay, at this point, Jack is going to get back on board. Um, yeah. and he's going to take is, a hand with him. <laughs> that is interesting given, given the conversations and stuff that the doctor and Jack have, because I want to definitely talk about yeah. everything that happens because if, if the doctor is going into the hub to get Jack, that's, completely different than yeah. jack having to run yeah well the especially since we find out that avoiding him yeah right right that's what i was gonna say is now that we know that it's not just since it because there if we go all the way back to bad wolf at the end of season one there's the idea that maybe he left without knowing that jack was alive again mm. like it's it's feasible because he jack wasn't in the room with him right i mean rose is the one who brought him back there's no reason necessarily to think that the doctor would know, but now we get confirmation. Oh, he knew. He knew. And not only did he know, he wanted to get away from Jack as fast as possible. Yeah. Um, and tries to, again, only Jack this time is able to hop onto the TARDIS and, you know, ride off with him. Did you like I, his little ride through the time? Vortex? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was, that was pretty fun. And they were joking in the commentary that wouldn't it be great if it just went straight into the credits and had the whole credit sequence with Jack clinging to the TARDIS <laughs> as it like flew through. I like that would just that, make that my life been... if they did that. But anyway, yeah, that, um, that always gets me a big smile. His, his doctor clinging to the outside. Yeah, um, yeah. But I, I really, I find I'm really intrigued by the dynamic that they set up between Jack and the doctor here, because yeah. you, you get, both the exuberance that Jack has of being back with the doctor, yeah. but also the, the blame, the, mm. the, uh, uh, feelings of hurt at being left behind. And, yeah. and that too, like there's, he really 
Barrowman really pulls that off well, oh, being yeah. able to show yeah. both of that. Yeah. And I, 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 it's, I like it cause it, it is complex. It is, uh, you know, these dualistic feelings that I'm sure he's feeling <laughs> inside yeah. of him. So, you know, it's, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's really, yeah, really no, that's a good, that's a good point. I mean, he never, he never lets you forget that it's not like Jack just goes back and everything's great. Like it was before. Like he never really lets you forget that he's, you know, kind of bitter about it and that he's looking for answers and, you know, wants to sort of tell the doctor off for leaving him behind. But also you never feel like he spends the whole episode, um, bitterly complaining or looking to start a fight or being sort of unreasonably belligerent, you know, you also get that sense of them, um, you know, still having some sort of affection for each other and still, you know, like he is, he is angry, but also he's, like you said, exuberant and excited to be back and, so he's kind of enjoying it on the one hand. And on the other hand, this is a slightly different and darker Jack than there was before. And he's looking for answers to all of these questions that he has. Yeah. And he yeah. does do like, he, he gets that seriousness across, but also he's just a ball of fun the whole time. Right. Right. Yeah. I, anyway, I think he does a great job of, of portraying both of those things. Um, and well, so okay, so we learn we learn that the doctor left him intentionally, and yeah. that the doctor knew there was something. Well, the doctor calls it wrong. There's mm. something wrong with him, yeah. or about him, or that he himself is wrong. And we, I'm trying to remember because he uses that term a couple of times in other episodes to say, this is, you know, this is wrong or mm. you're wrong. There's something wrong about, it. and I, I'm trying to remember a specific example and I, I can't think of, I feel like it usually has to do with, with like, we've, we've pointed this out before, like that he seems to have some sense of things happening in their proper time. Right. So like he's an agent of progress, but not progress ahead of itself or ahead of its time like mm -hmm. if, if things are too you know if if things are like progressing at a you know a rate faster than they should you know he could say that's wrong but but equally he could say that something that's stagnating mm -hmm. doesn't seem to be right either and mm. he seems to have a sense of of everything's sort of proper temporal placement and sequence yeah. so i feel like this goes along with that you know that you know and i think we're going again back to this theme in the season of what defines humanity and mm. and humanity being in some sense defined by its its you know mortality so i don't know whether you got this it seems to me that what's wrong with jack is that he's not fleeting. He's not mortal. He's a fact. He's a fixed point and nothing's going to get rid of him. And that it's not so much because the doctor, you know, there are other things which are long lived or immortal or something, you know, time Lords are that, you know, so it's more, 
it's not so much the concept of the immortality. I think it's the fact that kind of like Professor Lazarus, he changes what it means to be human. And he's not, you know, is the fact that Jack doesn't die make him in some sense not human. And in some way that is really viscerally abhorrent to the doctor, which is kind of interesting. Like he has this concept of what a human should be and Jack violates yeah. that. Yeah. Um, well, and that's why Jack calls him prejudiced. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's because, it, you know, why is that what it means to be human? And, and yeah, it's interesting that you brought up Lazarus because that, that's the difference between their definitions, right? Of is a human to defeat death or to face death? Mm. You know, those are the, the sort of options that we get um, with professor Lazarus and yeah. it's Jack doesn't, I mean, Jack faces and defeats death, right? Like, I mean, it's like right. several times just in this episode, you know, right. like, right. He, like he it, regularly faces it. Yeah. <laughs> like it, you know, it's, it's happened and, and we get the sense that, um, it's been happening for the last, you know, hundred and so years yeah. that he's died. I mean, we, and in Torchwood, he's killed a couple of times. I believe, <laughs> even. Um, yeah. He gets shot like right through the head once. Like and, in like and, the first episode. Yeah. 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 Um, and I think at least one other time, I think he, he dies and comes back again in Torchwood. And then here we learn that, you know, back in his past on earth, while he was waiting, you know, to see the doctor again, um, you know, that he died yet again, you know, mm -hmm. at least a couple of times. So anyway, I, it, yeah, that idea that, that there's something wrong, but of course the key difference here is, well, I, I guess a couple things to say about that. One is, can we say that's true or, or is Jack right in pointing out you're being prejudiced here? Maybe that's not actually yeah. a wrong thing or if it is wrong let's also remember that this isn't jack's fault oh of course. Jack, yeah. yeah jack was killed by the daleks and then brought back by rose so mm -hmm. even while we can sort of bring up lazarus and, and compare him and that like there's a distinctive contrast between no, this is not I, at all what and i i'm not saying you were trying to yeah, say yeah. he was like lazarus but like it it is I, I think that goes directly to the, the prejudice comment with the doctor, you know, where he, you know, you can be wrong and be the one who caused the wrong, mm -hmm. but you can also be wrong. Duh. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. Like, you, yeah. you know, and, and this is, if Jack is wrong, it's because he was wronged. It was because yeah. something, you know, and, and we get the explanation from the doctor here that it was Rose. It was, you know, as mm -hmm. much as we love Rose and whatever, she was not. <laughs> it's all her fault. <laughs> it was not powerful. Yeah. Yeah. It's all the woman. It's always the woman. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm totally just kidding. Please don't send me letters. We, um, we look forward emails to your emails. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, no, no. I, I but yeah. we get the yeah. idea here that, that as a human, not because she was a woman, but as a human, <laughs> Rose was not able to control the power of the TARDIS. Yeah. And, and overcompensated so to speak yeah um, well and the doctor even draws attention to that that that's something the final act of the time war was life so even he who is bothered by the wrongness can appreciate the human and and noble motivations behind what she did and and definitely i think the parallel between lazarus has nothing to do with parallels between their characters it's more a parallel to what's the doctor's attitude towards 
yes this yeah. this state of being um but definitely i think that for and that may be wrong and jack seems to even though jack calls him prejudiced and he's right to jack kind of agrees i mean he's kind of looking for the you kind of get the impression that yeah he wants to get back with the doctor to kind of tell him why he feels betrayed and to maybe get back in the TARDIS and travel again. But part of it too, is to see if the doctor can fix it. You know, yeah. that he asks, what about Rose? Could she reverse it? Yeah, that, so there's a sense in which even Jack is weary of that. He senses that this is wrong and mm -hmm. isn't quite sure. You know, the doctor asks him at the end. And again, we're getting that other theme of, of, evolution and and human progress and the doctor asks him at the end do you want to die and jack's like i really don't know yeah <laughs> and he yeah. says he says i thought i did um but then there's also something uh which is you know heartening about seeing humanity's survival so right. he's not even really sure how he feels about it mm -hmm. um so i think He's getting a, a nuance. I mean, he has a pretty nuanced view already, but I think from the doctor's point of view, it, it is about overcoming that prejudice, that not not blaming Jack for something that he can't control um, or, you know, maybe finding a way to sort of not have that gut reaction and, and leave him behind over something like this. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So glad to see Jack. Yes. Again. Yeah. Um, and I assume we'll keep seeing him at least for the next couple episodes anyway. <laughs> yeah. No, um, I don't, I don't know how much, how, how much longer he stays with the doctor obviously, but I mean, mm -hmm. he's there with him at least at the end of this one. So. Yeah. Um, you no, know, he's, he is there at least for the time being. I'll confirm that much. <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> And so where are they? So they are on this planet. Do we ever get the name of the place where they're at? I forget. I don't think so. If, if we did, I didn't write it down. Um, I don't think that we do. It, we we know that it's Chantho's planet yeah. um, originally, but that she's the last of her kind. And yeah. it's sort of been taken over by both the humans and the future kind. Mm. Um, and the humans are being hunted. Mm -hmm. by the future kind um and they're attempting to escape and and go to utopia yes so um that's sort of the the conceit of this episode and there and there's we don't know where utopia is or even where it could possibly be because pretty much this is the end of the universe and everything is dark yeah. So we're not real clear where where exactly they're going. I yeah, guess. yeah. Life in the universe is sort of fading. Uh, just kind of um, a kind of a terrifying which, setup for. <laughs> yeah. Well, which had me thinking about the word utopia because yeah. the word itself means no place. No place. Exactly. A place that uh, uh, literally a place that doesn't exist, which yeah. um, is interesting because that's. You know, that's that's the original. But, you know, now people tend to think of utopia as being, oh, a, a, a good place, a mm -hmm. place to strive for. And, and that's that's what the people in the episode seem to think 
yeah. is where they're going, right? Utopia, right. oh, it's this place where we want to go, but is it really a place that doesn't exist? Well, and that's always been inherent in the idea of utopia. You know, whenever, from Thomas More onwards, whoever writes about utopia, they do write about it as the cliche of utopia is an idealized society, but the irony of it is that the word literally does mean no place. So the point being, yes, we can dream about idealized societies, but do they exist? Is it possible mm. for them to exist? Um, right. That the, even in the title is the clue that there is something, unob, you know, unobtainable, unobtainable about that yeah. whole concept, you know? And yeah. so I think that's why you get, you know, the genre of dystopia coming right out. Of, like, the way I think of it is utopia is always haunted by dystopia. That one is never... Out of dystopia, I feel like, there's always the remnants of some utopian dream that wasn't right, able right. to realize itself. Right. <laughs> because yeah. maybe it can't. <laughs> right, right. No, I think that's right. It's It's always something gone wrong with someone's idea of what utopia in a good yeah. sense yeah. eutopia should be um yeah anyway yeah yeah the the so in this particular case that's the question right we we have all these people sort of putting their hope and faith in this professor mm -hmm. and uh we don't know like well we'll talk about the professor in a minute i guess but we don't really know like are they going someplace that actually even exists right that, you know, and we get the little, you know, the kid there. I forget the kid's name. Cree? Crete. 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 Yeah. Okay. Cree, like the office is what I, no. Um, <laughs> anyway, the 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 kid uh, who, you know, oh, sky's made of diamonds or whatever. I can't remember exactly what he says. Yeah. Um, or she, is it a boy or girl? I think it's a boy. <laughs> okay. I thought so, but had a second guess there. Um, and, and. Yeah, and of course it's completely absurd. Like that's no, there's no place yeah. like that. But maybe that's because this is no place, <laughs> right? Um, and there's just not very many places even left in the universe to get to. Or even if it does exist, you know, a trip in a sort of standard fuel-powered rocket. How long is it going to take them to get there? Right. Will they ever even get to it? And if they do, by the time they get there, will it still be? a viable place yeah. to live. So uh, lots of questions we don't know answers to, but um, they're by the end of the episode in, in the rocket that's apparently working and going somewhere mm -hmm. or nowhere. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, interesting. So where do I want to go from here? <laughs> I want to talk about the professor because okay. he's, he's um, the one sort of creating this and, and, boosting their hope right yeah um right it's better to let them live in hope and rather than tell them that he might not be able to get them off so it's really okay so yeah he does a bunch of stuff and gets them off but then of course we find out at the end mm -hmm. that he's the master yeah who you tell me is a classic who villain he is uh, a classic who villain so Since, uh, maybe, yeah, maybe you can sort of give us some background there. Yeah. Um, so he was introduced in 1971. 
Um, and if my count is correct, he's been portrayed, he was portrayed by six different actors over the course of Classic Who. So between, he even makes a, an appearance, he's in the, <laughs> strangely enough, he's played by Eric Roberts in the 1996 TV movie. So there you go. Eric Roberts nice. played the master. So, All right. um, so between 71 and 96, there was six different actors who played him. So like a time, you know, as just like the doctor, as a time Lord, he has an ability to regenerate so we can recast him and, and use him, you know, whenever we have a need for a nice arch villain. Um, mm-hmm. And he is very in that. I don't think I'm giving anything away by saying it has a lot of the, the Sherlock Holmes Moriarty kind of arch enemy, you know, mental sparring. And he's, he is that kind of uh, inverse of the doctor, you know, he's, he's that kind of arch villain, which is, you know, as everything the doctor is, but bad, right? Like he's as clever as the doctor, he's can Hmm. regenerate like he can all these different things. But, you know, the Time Lord who uses their powers for evil rather than for good. Um, and But then even underneath that, I think you kind of already sense this and, and we'll get a little bit more, you know, uh, nuance next time. Um, there is an element, too, of enemies which are almost friends or could be allies, potentially. You know, there's that, you know, you'll get stories where they have, they're forced to team up for an episode to, you know, defeat some other evil, but then they go right back to being like, mm-hmm. you know, antagonists again. So, you know, he's very much in that vein. Um, but, uh, yeah. So, and, and also that he's the recurring villain of the season that in season one, they brought back the Daleks in season two, it was the Cybermen. So this is our season three uh, nod to the classic episode, you know, bad guys, essentially. Um, With, you know, using, using, I think, a really brilliant use of uh, Paul Cornell's human nature in hiding, in using the concept of the the fob watch. which again is something we talked about was a novel that predates the the new series, but as they're bringing all the strands of the episodes together, yeah, this is a really clever way of bringing the master back, but in a way that fits into the story that we've been telling and that doesn't, you know, because the doctor said way back in season one, I know I'm the only one. If there were other time lords out there, I would know. But here right. we go. This is why he doesn't know. It's because the master made himself human and hid at yeah. the end of the universe. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, right. And I, I had some questions um, about that, that we sort of went back and forth on email on, but um, like, that was, that was my question was like, do, can time Lords sort of sense other time Lords? And I guess we sort it of, it kind of seems like they can. Ta- <laughs> we, well, I was going to say, we sort of tacitly get that at, at the end here where, yeah. where, because the doctor never actually sees the master, right? He's already in the TARDIS or, or running into the TARDIS. You know oh no, what? there's that moment he, before. he. What I was noticing this time is that he never hears the master's name. Like okay. he 
knows the man he knows who he is but he does see there's a brief moment where it's like he gets in the door and he and Derek Jacoby look at each other and then Derek Jacoby goes into the TARDIS and shuts the door and then he regenerates right right, so it's 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 it seems to me that the doctor and by that point it's not until he really sees him that the doctor you know uses the name master but he uses it before the master ever tells him who he is Mm -hmm. So it seems to me that he either senses who he is or he can know just by sight, even if he's in a new... And that kind of makes sense for Time Lords, that even if they change bodies... There's, they still have some way of recognizing, yeah, there's you know, some, something... you're the doctor or you're the master or whatever. And and we've gotten other, um, you know, creatures who have recognized the doctor as the doctor without sure. necessarily being yeah. told. So that's not completely unprecedented. Yeah. Um, of course, as Jack says in this episode... Well, the TARDIS helps, <laughs> right? Yeah. How did you know yeah. I was a doctor? Because last time yeah. you you saw me, it was, uh, you know, in a different right. body, well, and, in a different and form. I think, too, the fact that, you know, I think what's also interesting is that the doctor, we're getting into the doctor, but he he is afraid of, of, of Yana opening the watch before he even knows which time lord just the idea that it's a time lord is frightening but again a big clue is that as soon as he does open the watch he starts sabotaging everything you know he locks them in he locks them in he lets the future kind in i think at that point if you're the doctor you're thinking well how how many many time lords would actually be start doing that start doing that and so the master seems like a likely candidate but Even though, even though that's true, I think it is interesting that, as Martha notes and and Jack, that the prospect of another Time Lord isn't the hopeful thing that you might think it would be. That the Doctor right. doesn't seem particularly pleased about that. It seems like it makes him fearful more than hopeful or excited. Well, and and Martha is scared. Yeah. By it, like even yeah. before the doctor knows, yeah, um, or before she runs and tells the doctor or what you like exactly, yeah. I forget exactly what the order of all that happens in, but um, like she sees the watch and recognizes it and points it out to the professor, and she realizes what it is, yeah, but like that's why she goes running to the doctors because she seems scared even though she has no idea who this guy is or could even fathom that there might be a guy called the master who's a bad guy. Right. Right. (laughs) Um, Yeah. No, there is like, you would think this would be a great thing, you know, and you would think that even Martha would think, right. Another guy like the doctor. Fantastic. You know, open the watch right now. Um, Yeah. No, but even she seems to sense that, uh, this is not something that I should tell him or this is not anything which should be opened without the doctor nearby. You know, that there's something delicate about the whole situation. Yeah, yeah. Which is kind of interesting. So, um, so, I mean, so did, one that, has did to... that, I don't know, for, like, did that surprise you, that element of it? Or would you have expected that if a Time Lord, if there were possibilities of more Time Lords... 
Would I was the, surprised would... when she sort of run away, ran away scared. Um, yeah. Like to go, like if she was running to get the doctor, I thought it would be like a happy, like, Hey, look, there's yeah. another time Lord here. Yeah. Like yeah. not, not a, Oh, I need to get the doctor. Cause this is wrong. You right. know, so to speak. Right. Um, which right. is, what she sort of seems to do. So yeah, so that aspect of it did sort of surprise me. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, yeah, and and the sort of the other thing, sort of more like mechanically or whatever, um, or not even mechanically, but like, like it, is this just, so now are we just to assume that this has always just sort of been part of Time Lord, um, you know, their, their bag of tricks is, is that any of them could have this, Chameleon, chameleon watch it kind yeah, of seems like it. it seems like 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 a piece of technology that they have yeah you know whether like it just comes standard with a tardis whether and, every tardis is equipped yeah. with one or whether the master stole one or where he got it i don't know that we really find that out um but they're at least common enough that the doctors isn't unique well and then the other well the other thing i was thinking is that the doctor gave um, Latimer mm. his watch mm-hmm. after he was done with it. So does that mean he can't ever use that again? Or does he, uh, maybe after Latimer dies, he goes and collects it again or something? Like, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Because that's Whether... the last, the last we know is he's sitting there as an old man in a wheelchair holding the watch. Right. Right. Uh I don't have an answer for you for that yeah. one. No, I, it's just, it's a question. You know, yeah, whether okay whether you any old no. fob watch will do. I mean, they have, I mean, Martha recognized it because it has is the Gallifreyan sort of script on it. Right, it's so, like a, a sister to the to Yeah, the one. yeah, so it seems like, I don't know whether any old watch will do. Maybe it has to be, you know, uh, well, that's what formatted I, I sus- in some way. I suspect, uh, that's what I gathered even from even before this episode in, in yeah. the human nature episode i i gathered that it was a special device not i mean that it was a watch but like a watch plus you know like yeah. Yeah. a su- special super like you know there's watches now that you yeah. know, can tell you altimeter and barometer and you know you can go hiking with and has gps it's and all a, that this is like the little, next step above that you know yeah it's a little it's a little time load flash drive that just stores your personality rather than your right files. right yeah <laughs> Hope it hope its capacity is big enough. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, you might lose a few things when you go there. No. Yeah. Um. So anyway, I, yeah, I, I do think all of that's interesting. That, you know, one, you've got this recurring villain who was hiding out, who the doctor could not detect and now can. So interesting that the technology hides you not only from enemies mm. but also from other. Time lords and yeah. other people, uh, you know, from friends who might yeah. be willing to and, help you, and from and from yourself, you know. I think that's, well, yeah, that's, that's a huge right. part of it. That that you know they they made it so clear in the human nature episodes that John Smith, while he had these inklings of things, just like Yana does, you know, that certain words sound familiar, or occasionally he says things he doesn't really know what they mean, but really he's got no clue. Right, he's. You know, Yana is very much a separate character. It's He's not, you know, he has no evil motivations. He has no clue that he's had this other life. Um, and, you know, so then, you know, it's a surprise 
like he says, that disguise so good, I, for, I forgot who I was. That, you know, it's a surprise not only to everyone else, but to himself, too. Right. Um, and then there's also the, the, well, we don't know how long he's been there on mm-hmm. this planet. Um, and there's the moment where he talks about ever since he was a kid. Mm. Uh, but that's not necessary because the doctor had like a sketch of memories from when he was a kid. Right. But that was, that was the thing that, um, Joan, no, what was Joan. her name? Yeah. Joan. Joan. Yeah. Yeah. Joan, uh, like calls him out on, right. Is that, well, you know, where are the, where are the places you hid, where are the things that only kids right. would know and you don't have those memories. And maybe that's, maybe there's a reason for that, yeah. but like, we don't get to know enough about Yana here. Uh, whether or not he really was a kid. Like, did he come? Right, right. You know, like, how long has he been there? He's clearly been there long enough to be able to help build this spaceship or at least figure out how to run it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, so, which seems like more than the three months that Martha and right. the doctor no. were. Yeah, you know, I, uh, there, yeah, if I was like, going to, my, my feeling has always been that he's, lived a long life you know now whether as a human whether that stretches back to childhood you know right we can't really say because his like you said his backstory does have the kind of fuzziness that john smith's does that like you know Mm -hmm. that it you know i was an orphan found with nothing but a watch that sounds like the kind of sketchy backstory that a tardis would make up like you know like you like it doesn't it doesn't have any detail. It doesn't invite a lot of questions. It's just, you know, at a certain point that he becomes conscious, all he knows is that I have no, I have no backstory. I have no family. I had no origin. I just have myself in this watch. Um, So it, it has the ring of that kind of, you know, only very lightly sketched background that, that the TARDIS gave the doctor. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah so but it it even with that it does feel like he was probably there longer than you know a few months or whatever like he's it so. seems at least years possibly decades yeah has yeah. been hiding out um yeah. you know in this spot at the end of the universe and so here's the question too here and this is sort of my final question related to the doctor or to the professor, I mean, and the master. Um, we get the moment where the doctor explains that the TARDIS went all the way to the end of time mm. to escape from Jack. Because mm-hmm. Jack was wrong. <laughs> right. The, doc- but, the TARDIS is trying to shake him off. <laughs> right. But I don't know. I mean, I guess we, you know, we tend to take things at face value when the doctor's talking about the TARDIS. So, yeah. like, he seems to know, but like at the same time, it's like, we've also seen the TARDIS be attracted to things that are wrong. Sure. So is it, is it a little of both maybe? Like, is it somehow like, even though the doctor didn't sense that there was another time Lord, maybe the TARDIS did. And, and maybe it realized there's something wrong here that needs to be fixed. Yeah. Um, like maybe it was initially pushed that far by Jack. And then once it got close enough, 
it said, oh, here's a comfy place that we can go that has yeah. something wrong for the doctor to take care. So I, I don't know. I mean, I'm just like, yeah. again, there, we, we've seen the TARDIS sort of be off kilter and take them to a place that needs a little bit of help. So maybe this is another one of those times. Maybe there's maybe it's a complex, you know, sort of algorithm and, and we can't attribute it to any one specific thing. But um, just thought I'd throw that in there. Yeah, no, I think that's always a possibility when you're talking about the TARDIS, um, especially because it, it like, okay, end of the universe. Yes. That does seem like, you know, that Seems could pretty far it, just to shake off a stone. I was good. That's I what mean, I was going to say. Like it, it, it does. <laughs> I mean, you understand like wanting to go as far away as possible to get rid of Jack, but also, you know, to take, again, to take the doctor to this really specific time and place with this really personal thing for him does have yeah. more of a sense of, you know, if not providential, you know, cause it's not really Providence, it's the TARDIS, but the TARDIS has this sense of orchestrating and guiding things. Um, and, right, it can and, see the time vortex all yeah. at once, so it, right. it has an and it, idea it's of it's time to happening. go here now. <laughs> right, right. Um, so anyway, so I, I don't, obviously that's complete conjecture and suggestions. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't have any answers there, but uh, just just an idea. Um, so uh, I guess just sort of fleshing out the doctor, we've sort of been talking about him all along with in con- connection with these others but okay one um, thing real quick before oh, sorry, i don't want to i don't want to forget to say because i i got this off of this blogger that i read called philip sandifer um but he was writing about this episode and another thing that he kind of said about the master too um i'll try to summarize what he says at length but basically that one of the things that's interesting about the end of this episode is the way he doesn't necessarily act in the way that you expect him to act. So he says he starts out, you know, in as, you know, the kind of arch villain old man, which is always how he was in the old, in the classic series. Um, but then he regenerates and suddenly he's new and young, just like the doctor is and just like the show is. So he sort of updates himself to match, you know, mm. the heroes. Um, and then, uh, Philip Sandifer writes, um, not content to remain in the pleasant bunting of the past, the master promptly throws out all the standard tropes and acts quickly and decisively to kill the doctor, leaving him in a thoroughly bad setup. Um, so he doesn't explain his big plan. He doesn't gloat. He doesn't do all the, you know, arch things you expect the villain to do of, right. He, oh, I no, just where I want you. No monologuing. No monologuing. Like. It's just, it's just <laughs> yeah. end of the universe. Bye bye. And he gets in the TARDIS and he leaves. And so that kind of abruptness of that and like, okay, wait a minute. You're not supposed to do this, right? Like you're supposed to stand around and talk long enough for the doctor to outwit you. Um, but he doesn't do that. He just gets on with it and totally leaves them in the lurch. So um, it's kind of a, you know, after we're used to, you know, villains like the Daleks and the Cybermen who do like to go at length about what they're going to do. And and the Doctor does have the time to sort of right. defeat they them. Sort of, 
hem and haw, you know, yeah, don't really yeah. kill him right away. And... Yeah, um, this master is, I think, meant to be more of a match for the doctor in that way, that he he has sort of updated himself and, you know, he is, you know, going to just effectively, you know, steal the whole engine of the plot and leave, um, and leave them kind of in this situation with no way out. So just a kind of interesting to see them sort of playing with, and that's not necessarily something we would know if we haven't watched the classic show, but I think we know because we've seen villains like this before. Like you, you, yeah. you've, you've seen Moriarty, you've, you know, right. you've seen Bond, or the Bond villains, villains, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, the fact that he fits in that tradition, but also in this episode kind of subverts it, um, is kind of one of the things that I make that makes that ending so effective, I think. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't really quite think of it, but I think it's pretty yeah it's no subtle. it's, one of those it's sort of that, subtly intuitive yeah yeah it's it's not once you point it out it's kind of like oh yeah you know he does mm-hmm. kind of he does get out rather quickly you know right so yeah. hmm. interesting um okay so well, i interrupted I'm, you what were you what else were you starting no to no say? no that, i'm i'm glad you said that i i think the um no, I just want to sort of flesh out the doctor too a little bit because mm-hmm. we've sort of talked about him in relation to the other characters, but um you know, I think so well, and again sort of going along with Jack, like we get that initial um he's not uh not exactly happy to see Jack. Mm. But by the end of the episode, he's like suggesting ways for jack to die <laughs> you know like it's like hey you can't die so here come do this dangerous thing that would kill anyone else yeah yeah only yeah, you he's can do. volunteering and, him for like the really and, dangerous missions and stuff yeah it's like well while you're here we may as well you you know <laughs> use your unique condition um so i don't know I, I just thought that was interesting and and almost in the doctor's sort of way you know an acceptance you know and obviously they're they're also they're having their conversation all while this is sort of taking place too right while he's well while Jack's stripping down to go into the thing where he doesn't need to strip down to go into but yeah. um you, you know like <laughs> well, he's kind I, of I love that well I look good though <laughs> yeah um but yeah like i mean they're sort of having this whole discussion and and that's that's where he gets you know where Jack says oh well I never thought of you as prejudiced, but apparently you are kind yeah. of thing. And, and, and obviously they're in dire straits at the end of the episode. So we don't know exactly what all is going to happen. Um, no, I think, but, I think this episode for them is about, um, it's a them, reconciliation, them slowly reconciling and slowly warming yeah. to each other again. Um, um and it kind of helps too, that the doctor is played by a different actor. It kind of gives you that sense of distance because you know that this isn't Jack's doctor in a sense. So you you sort of have to let them take their time getting to know each other again and getting to see okay yeah. what is Jack and the 10th doctor going to be like as opposed to Jack and the 9th doctor. And so right. you have the excuse of the subplot of, you know, 
Jack's well, sort of and... questions to sort of give them the space to really get to know each other. And I think by yeah. the end, you do get the sense of them as together and, you know, friends again. And, you know, you, not, without that sort of barrier between them. The, the tension. Yeah. yeah. Well, and of course, the catalyst for that is, once again, Rose. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, it, it's it's the first mention when when the doctor you know says so jack says oh i saw the list of people who died mm. at canary wharf and the doctor says oh no 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 rose is fine she's in an alternate dimension but she's okay and with mickey and her mom and all that stuff yeah so and that's when jack first that's like you know, beyond beyond the you abandoned me, beyond whatever else, that's what gets him to hug the doctor, right? Yeah, it's yeah. it's it's everything's okay, Rose is safe, or yeah, whatever. Yeah. Um and and Rose was their initial connection. I mean, Jack, right, he rescued Rose. He yeah saved her, um, you know, from falling from that that blimp thing, the the mm-hmm. balloon. Um and and she's the one who introduced him to the doctor and, and convinced the doctor to go after him and save him and stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. Um so it was it was Rose who was that initial connection and, and it's interesting that, that Rose is again that, that thing that brings them together, even in her absence, you know, even without being there, that's sort of what initially brings them together and then they can sort of work out their issues, you know. Yeah. Uh while while under duress. Um, right. I just had an epiphany. It's, I'm not quite sure if this qualifies, but it may be a cabin scenario, which we're going to talk about in a few you minutes. You know, I kind of thought about that. Um, um, I was, I, I did, I did. I don't want to think about I don't want to get into cabin scenarios, but, but maybe, maybe we'll think about that and, and bring it. You know, I mean, you know what the cabin scenario, there's something in Doctor Who, it's often referred to as the base under siege. Yes. I feel like that has a strong affinity with the cabin scenario. And this definitely, I think, would qualify as space under siege. Um, yeah. So yeah, yeah. if those two are naturally parallel, then, yeah, I think this... Yeah, we're we're gonna yeah. get that into that in, when we start talking about Buffy. So I don't okay. want to go off track here right, because right. I will talk... I have talked for many minutes about cabin scenarios already. <laughs> um, not in this podcast, but yeah. anyway. Yeah. Um, I was just, as I was, I shouldn't have said it. I was just sort of rambling and I said it. Yeah. Anyway, um, it gives them their moment, their time to, to sort of work out their issues. And and I think, yeah, by the end of the episode, they're in a good place. Yeah. Um, And, um, I, I I like Russell Davies was like, uh, he said something like, yeah, this, this is what they need. This is what men need. They need a countdown clock and radiation and, the end of the universe and a door yeah. between them. And then they can open right. up and start talking to each other. And like right, right. the whole thing is just a setup for them to like, and, and it man, is such a, such a great scene. I just love I, that scene between the two of them. And I, you can't help but draw scenarios between Buffy and Cordelia. Yes. <laughs> like yes. In, in, in the next thing. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, yeah. not there yet. Yeah. Talking about the doctor and Jack and, and other stuff. Um, and actually, Going from them, of course, mm-hmm. you see all of these moments yet again with Martha hearing about Rose and yeah. and and the looks that she gives and and the cringes and yeah. the sort of black looks that she has. Um, 
you know, just in, in, in hearing even Rose's name and of, you know, and, and sort of that you can just almost hear her thinking, mm. of course, Rose, of course, Rose. Yeah. Oh, she was, oh, she was blonde. Yeah. What <laughs> you know, a like, surprise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What a surprise, you know? Um, and other than the sort of discovery of the watch and the fact that the, that Yana is also a time Lord, that seems to be, Martha's role most of this episode is to like cringe at the mention mm. of Rose. Um, I don't, that's not completely true. Obviously she, she does some other stuff, but, yeah. um, but yeah. But, and I, and I think that might underlie some of the criticism of Martha that, that some people have that now I, I don't think it's a fair one because I think throughout the season, she does do a lot more than she's not just there to, be jealous or to pine or to you know she does no, other no, things no, no. but i think some people that is their dominant view of martha and so i sure. think that does um i think that's kind of one of the reasons why some people have a difficult time with her as a character yeah, yeah. well Which, and... on the one hand i can see on the other hand i think it does ignore you know all the times when she does plenty of other things so um Right, so right. I don't, and, I, I'm, I'm sympathetic, but I'm not quite, And know. it's not like it's not understandable. You Absolutely. know what I mean? Like, yeah. like, it's not just that they had this friend called Rose because everyone, I mean, whether you're in a romantic relationship or a non-romantic relationship, whatever, like everyone has had friends before you yeah, met yeah. that person, you know, unless it's the one friend that you've had since second grade, chances are that person has had other friends and other acquaintances and other relationships. So that's sort of just part of being human is learning how to deal with, mm. you know, things from the past. But at the same time, it's not just like they're talking about old friends. Whenever, whenever Rose comes up, it's at the exclusion of Martha. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's what hurts her more than the mention of Rose. It's not yeah. that they're talking about Rose. It's that they're, you know, it's that Rose is coming up and it's affecting how the doctor views Martha or yeah. or doesn't view Martha in yeah. many cases. Yeah. And I think that that's really like I I really I'm not sure that it's, you know, just about it, it. I mean, Rose becomes like, oh, they're talking about Rose again. So, yes, she rolls her eyes. Yeah. But again, it's it's the but I'm right here. Rose isn't. Yeah. And hasn't been now for some time. Right, like, right. Well, and when, and, you... and when the doctor, you know, he, oh, she was so human. Everything she did was, and you sit, you get Martha there like, well, I'm human too. And, right, and but right. he doesn't sort of put her on that pedestal in the same way that he does. Right. You know. Right. And right. I think too, what really drives that home is when she's eavesdropping on the conversation between the doctor and Jack. And you get her you can kind of see her listening and she says something like, I don't understand half the things they're talking about. Like they talk about, you know, the doctor kind of mentions regeneration and doesn't really explain it. Or they talk about Rose being trapped in the parallel universe and defeating Daleks and absorbing the time vortex and all these really big things. And you realize Martha's hearing this all for the first time. And right. so you could kind of see her sitting there thinking, why have I not heard all this before? You know, and so part of the exclusion is not just, oh, some you were friends with somebody else before me or you like somebody better than me. It's that she's been with the doctor for how long? 
And mm. the, this is all news to her that right. she's heard about Rose, but she never really heard what happened to Rose, you know, or, mm. or what does regeneration mean or what can the TARDIS do and all these things. So right. I think when she's listening to that, you get that sense of how much she is still excluded from, you know, that, you know, he can see Jack, who he hasn't seen for the longest time, but they're almost more intimate in a way, that they have all these shared right. references and history, history and, and everything, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I feel bad for Martha a little bit there. Sure. Um, yeah. We'll see. We'll see how that pans out, though, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I guess just in the last couple minutes, um, Chantho, <laughs> she's an alien. She is. She says Chan and Tho yeah. at the beginning and end, respectively, of every sentence. Mm-hmm. It's kind of annoying. <laughs> um, she's the last of her race. Martha gets her to swear in her own way. Mm-hmm. And she giggles like a 12-year-old. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's kind of, I know, I, I'm sure you put this down. But she's kind of a companion to Yana's. Yes. Yeah. And a little, another subtle little hint that Yana is more than what he seems, right? That he's already kind of doctorish, except he's human and he has an alien companion, or so we think. And that's the fake out is like, well, he's human and she's the alien, but really that's, that's not true, you know? Right. Um, yeah, I wasn't because like the way that she's looking at the watch and stuff mm-hmm. when when uh, Martha's sort of pointing out and making the professor um, sort of destroying the perception filter, I guess, around it. You know, he like she's the way that Chantho's looking at it. You're not quite sure if she knows what it is or isn't. Mm. And then later, you I mean, you come to realize she didn't. Right. Because yeah. the professor, the master at that point, yeah. sort of shoots her and and gets away but um anyway so yeah like i mean i i don't dislike chant though i just dislike that way of <laughs> her speech it's really annoying um but you know she seems like a competent person and, and yeah I'm, her... I'm i'm gonna defend it a little bit because and not necessarily like that i like that uh quirk in particular but i think what it does is give a sense of culture to her that it's a it's a strange little way of signaling a different culture with its own customs and its own sort of sense of uh propriety and everything and so you know that it's it's rude to not address people in this way so Mm -hmm. you know even though the the joke is maybe wrung a little dry um it i still kind of like the idea of it like it's a nice shorthand way of conveying a whole alien race with just sure. one little particular well, particularity of speech you know and and there is something to the fact that her being the only one you know you could ask well then why does she do that? like the anyone who would appreciate the subtleties sort right. of of this right of this uh is gone uh, propriety yeah. Yeah. is is dead so yeah, like what's even the point? But but it's it's that idea of we're not polite for other people, right? We're mm. we're polite for ourselves, mm-hmm. and that's you know um, 
oh, I forget. I forget sort of there's a work that really explains that really well. And I can't remember what it is off the top of my head now. And it's going to drive me nuts. Um, anyway, but yeah, just that idea that, that yeah, you, you hold yourself to a certain standard rather than, you know, doing it for other people, so to speak. So I understand that it's still annoying (laughs) to me, but I I get what you're saying. So, and I don't dislike Chanto. I think, you know, even the fact that she does stand up to the master at the end, despite the regard that she gives him and, and, all of that you might you might expect her to just sort of roll over and and let him leave unmolested. Yeah. But she doesn't. She she shoots him and and yeah. tries to stop him and and yeah. And I think even his... even to the point where she like because she wasn't going to be on the ship either, right? She even talks about yeah how she's she's staying behind with the professor. At that yeah, point. she won't leave and, without him. Yeah, and there's she has no even if she stops him, she's still doomed yeah. in her own way. Yeah, so. There, there's a certain respectability and, and heroism even in that. Yeah, no, and I, I think uh, that the line, too, that when she shoots him and he says, killed by an insect, a girl. And you, to me, that suggests yeah. that for the master, the two are equivalent. You know, that she, sure. this stupid bug just got in my way and how annoying, you know. Right, um, right. And then... When I thought of that, I thought, you know, contrast that to Joan saying, I must look so very small. And the doctor says, no, you know, that she doesn't look like a bug. She, you know, she doesn't look small to him. But for the master, his girl companion would be an insect. Right. You know, how could how could this insignificant? Yeah, exactly. Destroy me. Destroy me. You know, so you get his ego there and. um so then I think her kind of being insect-like is sort of indicative of that, that that's sort of his view of his assistants, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And contrast that to the doctor who, you know, reveres humanity, that what's what's so wonderful about Rose is that she was so human, which for him is alien, you know, that he doesn't right, see right. Time Lords <laughs> as better. He sees humanity is something you know admirable so yeah yeah interesting well all right so we'll pick it up from there next time yeah yes yeah um quite quite literally we'll lead straight into the next one sure as as one might expect yes um on to buffy on to buffy okay well we started to talk about this, so let's start there. It, it, you always think that there's not going to be anything that connects these episodes, but darn it. Yeah, I, I, you know, and it w- didn't even catch on to it beforehand. But all right, so we're we're going to talk about what is a cabin scenario, yeah. and and for those who don't know already, I've, although I've mentioned it several times, and probably most of you are just like, shut up. <laughs> um, I wrote a paper last year for the Joss and June conference on uh, titled exploring cabins in the weed and verse woods. Um, mm. the, the, the premise being uh, that the movie cabin in the woods um, is actually a really good uh, descriptor or, or like a, 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 a sort of a, a, a meta idea in, in horror, but also I suppose in other types of, of stories. Um, and and that the idea of 
a cabin in the woods um, sort of perpetuates this. Uh, it sort of gives a focus to to a story, you know, so that you can elicit these different character responses. And, and it does that by literally taking the characters out into some wilderness mm-hmm. and plopping them down in a ostensibly safe structure, at least <laughs> safe for a period of time yeah. um, that, that is under attack in some way or, you know, haunted by some outside force. Um, so the, the, and sort of the quintessential idea of that being literally a cabin in a woods, mm. um, like the movie, the cabin in the woods, or like here we get this cabin that Buffy and, and Cordelia find themselves in, um, in the middle of Miller's woods. Yeah. 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 But Buffy even uses the phrase cabin in the woods. Yeah. I mean, she says yeah. Miller's woods, but still, you know, you, yeah. that's a direct, you know, evocation of um, that concept, I think. But your, your, your mention of the, what was it like the fortress under attack or, like ba- or base under siege base under siege yeah yeah i think i think that has a similar idea um y- you know i think uh one of one of the things that i tried to show in my paper um is is that there are plenty of movies so some some other movies that might fall under a similar type of scenario would be um like night of the living dead mm. where where you wind up with this group of people in a house and outside are all these zombies who are um you know going around and mm-hmm. uh doing whatever but um the uh another one would be the thing mm-hmm. which is uh john carpenter right originally yeah or no yeah was his the original one uh he he had the first movie yeah yeah um but was based on uh a story oh gosh who who was it by uh i, I can't tell remember you. off the hand anyway it probably isn't that important important but um oh yeah he's a famous science fiction writer and gosh i wish i could remember it off the top of my head i know it's gonna I drive just, me crazy i just read so. it like recently too I know. you can keep um, talking and all but anyway so so stories like that where where again you have like a couple or a small group of people trapped in, in some place uh, where the, where the uh, threat is coming from the outside from a monster usually, or, or some, you know, it could be a human, oh, but uh, sorry to inter- it's John Campbell's who goes John there. Campbell. Yeah. John Campbell. Who That's right. There. Of course. Yeah. Um, famous science fiction editor and writer and, and, mm. um, sort of one of the the progenitors of the golden age of science fiction anyway um so the uh again the idea of just sort of the cabin scenario is that that when you put these characters in these places and you have them you know they're sort of safe momentarily at least uh from this mortal danger but there is mortal danger and it's imminent mortal danger. Like it's going to come get you at some point. You just have moments, you know, or maybe a little more than moments, but not long um, in order to figure out how to escape, but also how to figure out how to deal with other people in Mm -hmm. that setting. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's where the interesting part comes in because then you get these personalities and you get, you strip away like in the moments with the doctor and, and Jack, you strip away 
any sort of need for, uh, you know, uh, niceness or, (laughs) you know, uh, or euphemism or anything like that. Um, and here in, in, in the Buffy episode, we get that between Buffy and Cordelia. Um, and I think it's interesting because you see the, you see the progression to it, right? Um, they, when they're just, when they're with their group of friends, they don't, get down to the issues right it's just insults mm-hmm. when they're sort of by themselves but still in the school mm-hmm. you don't you don't get they don't work things out yeah when they're in the limo that's been mm-hmm. paid for by their friends or whatever they don't work things out right they they literally have to get into a life and death situation yeah. in a small enclosed place where they can't leave and they're going to die if they don't work things out between them and work and learn how to work together. That's when you get, um, the really frank conversation between the two of them. And you find out what it is they haven't been saying, not just to them, not just to each other, but sort of maybe even to themselves and, and certainly to like their other friends. And you get the admissions, um, from Buffy and, and just like some of that conversation that, that they have is, is really interesting, I think, because, um, you know, you talk about Buffy and, and we've talked about Buffy wanting to be a normal person. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and sort of how her thoughts have kind of moved beyond that, but, but there's still that idea, right. It's, it's, she talks about her old high school. She says at Henry, I was prom queen, fiesta queen, queen. I was on the cheerleading squad, but like none of that seems to matter since she became a slayer. Yeah. yeah. Right. It's, it's now I want to, I want someone to know that I was here and that I mattered for something other than as a slayer. Like yeah. not only is that a thankless job, nobody's even going to know about it. Right. Like so, so it would be nice just to have something in the, in the books. Well, and that's, I think the in the books is the thing too, that it's not even just, I want experiences which I can't have, or I want a normalcy that I can't have. It's that she wants, it's almost for posterity. Like she wants there to be documented proof that she lived, you know, and and did something other than this. And I think she's kind of obliquely talking about mortality here, you know, like, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Why do you oh. care about your own legacy other than you know you're going to be gone one day? And Buffy knows right. she could be gone any time. So right. the idea that I want the proof that I was here, you know, indicates that any day she knows she might not be. And she would like to have accomplished something other than this really difficult, thankless thing, which, like you say... There won't be any record of it. She won't ever be thanked for it or, you know, have that as any marker of an achievement or respect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that's kind of what what's appealing about the homecoming thing and the yearbook thing and and the popularity things is those are quantifiable things which you can point to a yearbook and say, you know, you can have physical proof of, you right. know of the fact that people liked you and you were involved and you went to high school and everything. Well, and even like, even if she doesn't die, even if she somehow as a slayer lives into old age, which is uncommon for slayers. Like, even if that happens, 
what can she point to? All the vampires she staked turned to dust. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's nothing. There's not, and nobody's like keeping count. Nobody's going to say, oh, you've, you've staked your hundredth vampire. Yeah. Here's a plaque, you know, like <laughs> that just isn't going to happen. So yeah. So it's, yeah. it's that, it's that tangible recognition or at least acknowledgement of what, what she has done and what she, that she existed Mm. Um, on the flip side you get Cordy (laughs) who on the one hand is the same old sort of selfish Cordy that she's always been but on the other hand I think the really poignant point isn't I mean she she does talk about the cabin um, in the cabin I mean you know she, she talks about sort of not understanding why it, you know, things even matter to Buffy and, and why can't she just live her life as she wants it. Mm. But I think, um, for Cordy, perhaps the most poignant moment comes a little bit earlier. Um, and well, and, and I think, sorry for in, in the cabin, it's, it's her revelation that she may actually love Xander, um, which is interesting in other contexts, um, that we can talk about later, but, um yeah. for Cordy it's it's that moment where she's um I think they're in the lunchroom and and you know she says to Buffy actually being homecoming queen isn't you know it's it's more than just handing out flyers is actually being here being present getting to know people and yeah and actually having friends and and doing stuff. and she says it in her typical you know um Cordy way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but I think that's a poignant point. <laughs> you know, I think it's it's something that Buffy just has not for whatever reason, like I mean not like she isn't part of the school as we see when she goes to the teacher and tries to get her to write a recommendation letter and the teacher's mm-hmm. like who who are you? Where did you yeah. sit? Were you yeah. even in my class? Like Buffy doesn't have a relationship with the people at the school. So really what is her expectation that she could be homecoming queen, that she would be popular enough to do that if she spends so much of her time outside elsewhere, maybe for very good reason, but that's sort of just the way the world works. And I think that's where Courtney's coming from is, you know, I actually popular because I at least talk to people and make them feel good. Whether, you know, whatever you have to say about Cordy and her selfishness, you don't get to be popular by just being mean. Not really. Not You really have to get to people like Jonathan. And if Jonathan wants a cupcake and six bucks and that's what makes him happy, just even knowing that about someone is going to do more than not ever talking to them or getting to know them at all. So I think yeah. I don't know. I, I've talked a lot. I've talked for like 10 or more minutes now just on my cabins and stuff. So what what are your thoughts there? No, I think you're right about that being the really poignant aspect, especially for Buffy, because Buffy wants to write Cordy off as the shallow, self-serving drama queen. But when Cordy comes back with, no, it's not about these things. It's about having actual friends you know, Buffy has to stop a second and think, well, maybe there is an aspect of this, which is, you know, appealing to me that it's not just writing it off as shallow. It's 
there's an element of life which she's missing out on. And that's what really she's longing for is this sense of actually connecting with her own school and living and having a, you know, teenage life. Um, mm -hmm. And that's kind of her motivator is rather than dismissing these things as, as silly or trivial, actually, you know, Buffy for a second, you know, and not that they should be seen as the most important things, but for a second there, I think Buffy has to consider that there's an aspect of her young life that she is missing out on. Um, and that maybe she shouldn't be so quick to dismiss Cordelia. Um, especially when Buffy is so longing of those things herself, you know, right. that they're not things to be judged because Buffy really right. misses the fact that they don't happen for her. Well, and especially when, when she admits that yeah. she was this popular person, yeah. which, which we knew she had at least, you know, she was more like Cordelia in her old school than she is now. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, and so that criticism, you, you know, you almost do have to take as a, like you're only criticizing, criticizing it because you can't have it. If you could have it, you would take it. Yeah. Um, yeah, anyway. and I and I think too for Cordy the the other big thing which she sort of touched on was her moment of saying I don't understand why you care about this when you have this other life as the slayer and for a second you get an idea that even Cordy thinks her own life is a little shallow that you know Buffy why mm. do you why would you kind of it, it, it's sort of in a backhanded way of complimenting. Like, why are you caring to compete for the things that matter to me when you have this whole other life? That's um, more and she, important and, and more yeah, and, significant. And, yeah, yeah. It's tacitly is the implication that, that, you know, why would you bother with this when you have more important fish to fry? So mm. it's almost Cordy acknowledging that Buffy's existence is a slightly higher one or that she's, you know, that, that by, by, you know, participating in the homecoming queen, she's almost stooping to a level, which isn't really natural to her, that these are things for us, you know, even though Cordy props herself up, you know, and in a way, you know, can easily, brag about her own popularity she also recognizes that that's a very different sphere than the world that the slayer lives in and that those are two very separate things so she's kind of struggling to understand why buffy would even care you know yeah which i don't yeah. know does that imply that if there were other opportunities cordy could potentially not care as well um i don't know how far to take that because i don't know how much that she's consciously thinking those things, but yeah, yeah. Um, it seems to at least acknowledge that Cordy knows her way of life isn't the only one that matters, which she would probably not uh, be the first to admit that. Um, but I think she realizes it, even if she doesn't always admit it. Right. Right. Or even act that way. I mean, yeah. she obviously she still pursues yeah. What she wants to pursue, but. Right, right. 
Yeah. yeah, no, she tries to put down, like, if it's about blood and innards, then you're, sh like, she tries to sort of imply that your world is steeped in death and mine isn't, you know, that, that it it becomes a, a negative, but I think in that one moment, there's also an element of um, admiration for Buffy, you know, that mm -hmm. it, it it's a surprise to Cordy that Buffy is even interested in, you know, little high school things like this. Yeah. 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 Um, so, uh, Which what else sort of, I guess, around Buffy, Cordy, the homecoming queen. Um, so at the end, of course, neither of them win. And not only do no. neither of them win, yeah. but it's a tie between the other two contestants. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you, I, I was kind of, as it was gearing up to that, I was kind of waiting for that. Like, it's going to be that neither of them wins. And then, of course, it was the other two girls that both win and not this. So you get the extra. Right. But it's like, the that's the only way. That's the only way it could have ended. You know, because to have them win together would have felt like a great big cheese ball. Sort of. That's, you know, the... I, I don't know. I don't want to put down anything. Like, you know, you know the shows that would end with them both winning. Um, right. <laughs> but then also, to to have one win over the other would sort of negate the point, you know, yeah. which is that they've found this new common ground, you know, right. and that they're both, they're not, they're not allied in their accomplishment. They're both allied in their sort of unfulfillment, you know, that it has to be that neither of them really gets what they want at the end. <laughs> right, and they're, right. and they're unified in that. Uh, they understand each other a little bit more because neither of them is totally satisfied with their role. Right. Well, and you don't, you get the sense that at the end, I mean, they haven't exactly become best friends, but there sure. certainly is a respect yeah, that yeah. they both, that they each have for the other, um, you know, in that, in those sort of final moments, even in their loss. Um, <laughs> I, I love that line where Buffy says to Xander, well, I did learn one thing. You don't want to mess with Cordelia. And Xander just goes, <laughs> no. gives her that look. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's just great. But, yeah. but that's, you know, that's a concession. That's it. That's Buffy's acknowledging that, Hey, you know, this, there is something actually maybe a little deeper, like as shallow as Cordelia seems, there is something more in there. There's, you know, more than just the, the shallow desires there. There's, it's actually fulfilling something human in her. Mm. Um, so, and, and vice versa. I mean, I think Cordy's portrayal of a slayer <laughs> to, uh, Lyle Gorch there um, yeah. is is you know her acknowledging sort of I think along the lines of what you were saying before that that she's sort of acknowledging that being a slayer is a, a tougher higher kind of thing mm. it's not um not for the faint of heart and yeah and she does admirably there as well yeah and I like the fact that like it's I I like the twist that she saves Buffy 
by sort of doing what she does, which is brag and set herself up and sort of get her, you know, imperial queen, you know, like, <laughs> queen, don't queen mess C, with yeah. me kind of. But it's, it, but Buffy's not watching, you know, it, none of, I mean, Z Giles is sort of coming to and watching out of the corner of his eye, but basically nobody's around. This isn't the Cordy brag, you know, for her friends that this is her using that as a means of defense you know and she uses it to protect buffy rather mm. than you know to put some to put buffy down or yeah you know or whatever so right. you kind of i like the kind of twist that in in the moment that matters she you know puts on all that confidence which makes her herself um and yeah. uses it you know to save Buffy's life, just like, you know, Buffy has skills and, sa you know, saves Cordy's life plenty of times. Um, yeah. Cordy has some skills of her own. And, you yeah. know, and, and it's a nice moment when she kind of, you know, we've spent the whole episode with her really just wanting to save herself in a way. I mean, and, and you kind of understand that because she knows Buffy can take care of herself. And really, she just knows that she's in the wrong place and wants to get out of there. But then at the end, it is refreshing to have her step in front of Buffy, you know, and physically put herself, you know, up against the vampire, yeah, you know, to defend Buffy. So yeah. I think that's a good moment. Um, just speaking of that moment where she's there, d did you recognize uh, Lyle Gorch? Yeah, well, he was in one of the episodes last season, right? Yes. Uh which one was it? It was the bad eggs. Right. Episode. Right. There were two of them. And yeah, yeah his brother yeah. gets eaten or whatever. Yes. I yeah. did remember him from, I couldn't necessarily remember exactly where, but well, I knew we'd seen him before. Bad eggs. Wasn't the best episode. So, I mean, that's understandable, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, that I just, it's, it's one of those weird things where like, it's like, he's a little bit. Familiar. Yeah. yeah. No, I yeah, knew why? we'd seen him before. Yep. Um, okay. Is he, is it, well, and also, didn't he run away at the end of that episode, too? Yes. That, so, that was going to be my next point, okay. was that that he he is a constant, well, I shouldn't say constant. Actually, he doesn't appear again. This is okay. only, he only appears twice, these two times. And, yeah, both times, the person he's with gets killed. Yeah, and he and runs he, he runs away like yeah. a pansy. After like lust, a big lustery and yeah. After like the hero moment, you know. Yep. Like Buffy climbing out in you know covered in right. blood or, you know. Yeah, the I core or whatever. Yeah. In the bags. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um so Well and I guess just on that note, like sort of the 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 contrast between the homecoming competition is the Slayer Fest yeah. competition, yeah. Um, where we get an enterprising Mister Trick, mm -hmm. and so we, uh, when we saw Mister Trick before, right, in in Faith, Hope, and Trick, uh, we already sort of talked about how he's like the new breed of vampire, right? He he likes computers, he likes capitalism, he <laughs> he's um, sort of in like in broad terms, he's on like the spike side of the chart right yeah. he's 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 into uh he likes the happy meals walking around mm -hmm. and 
likes being able to to get the easy pickings. Yeah. Um, yeah, and even more so because you you get the even though Spike doesn't want to initiate the apocalypse, he still likes to get his hands dirty a bit. He likes a fight. You know, he's right. He's a little scrappier. Whereas you get the idea trick doesn't even really want to hunt and kill his own food he he no, no. literally wants it delivered and he will engineer this whole big slayer fest and then he doesn't even take part he just sits back and enjoys it you know oh, yeah. he's yeah. like a connoisseur of these entertainments you know and even less of a fighter than spike is right yeah no he's he's definitely um you know a, a, a uh, uh, puller of strings so to yeah, speak yeah. um and uh i don't i don't know that any of the particular people involved i mean they all mm. they all die or except for gorch runs away yeah um well the the, the mr pitt guy sticks around <laughs> yes mr pitt <laughs> he doesn't have a name so i'm just gonna call Ger- him mr pitt yeah the, the 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 german mr pitt yeah um, yeah um, no, you're right. He he thinks we, he won. Will we see him end. again, or can you not say? No, we don't. No, I I can say, and I will say that no, we don't yeah. see him again. Because they kind of leave that. He's kind of says I won, and then it cuts, and it's like, you know. And I guess that's yeah, supposed to be like ironic. I, like clearly, he didn't win anything. But I didn't know if we were setting him up for a repeat or. No, no, because Mister Trick then gets taken into right. see the mayor. Right. Um, so presumably Mr. Trick just keeps all that money that he got for right. hosting Slayer Fest, which is maybe his ideal scenario anyway, because he gets to have another Slayer Fest perhaps at some point, <laughs> you know, should he yeah. be able to find other participants and, and gets to charge even more money, right? Well, so. I mean, he calls it Slayer Fest 98, implying that this is the first annual Slayer Fest, that this is... To, right. You know, that he's going to set this up as a the Olympics of the yeah. vampire sport, you know. And and I will say that there have been various Slayer Fests, Slayer Fests um, in in sort of the Buffy uh-huh. um, fan fan universe. Um, that, as well. seems, Not, that seems that uh, seems. Yeah, it's. Yeah, it's it's a good <laughs> name. I mean, even the mayor likes the name. Yeah. So yeah. he. uh he says that so yeah i mean it's well and and i and i i've never thought about i've never thought about this before but there's almost a pun in there with slayer like they're gonna slay her i don't know like they're the way they say slayer fest it kind of has a nice ring to it like yeah there's a there's a double meaning there yeah no this is definitely you know hey it's a new it's a new era of vamp vampirism and yeah and you know, where, you know, it's an era of conventions and, and fun and, you know, <laughs> hijinks. <Yeah. laughs> so, um, but they all, you know, get killed or maimed or run away. So, yeah. Um, yeah. The... That, that <laughs> n- n- none of these, none of, well, except for Mr. Trick, who I think you see is yes going to be continuing with us for a while mm-hmm. um none, none of the monsters are really that important though it's more the idea behind it and, and more to shed light on on mr trick's personality yeah um, yeah and and you know his sort of unique 
original original take on on what it means to be a vampire mm-hmm. um you know what why don't we since since we're talking about mr trick why don't we also talk about the mayor real quick too because that's okay. where where he kind of ends up um yeah so yeah. you you've you've caught the various references to the mayor in season two yeah and now and and actually even a couple in this season as well now mm-hmm. now we get to see him is yeah. he um worthy of the fear that especially snyder well has yeah i mean you're you're bringing up which was the main thing to me which was we have got these veiled references for so long and invoked with a sense of dread and then you get the you know the the attendant sort of shaking in his boots outside the office that he's going to get <laughs> reprimanded and you know he goes in and he's apologizing and the camera stays on the mayor's hands like it doesn't even want to show up his face he's so terrible and then it pans up and he's totally ordinary he could not be more ordinary um so that's really intriguing uh i mean i'm sure that's all on purpose you know that i'm nowhere even close to you know inferring any of that that's all meant to be i think ironic and so i guess the question becomes what is what is the source of this dread what what is lurking underneath just like professor yana what what sort of monster is lurking underneath the innocuous kindly gentleman you know Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and the only i mean you kind of get a little bit of it with the emphasis on the cleanliness that you know that the the guy's hands aren't clean enough even though you know he washes them like 20 times a day out of fear you know and uh you know he's offering moist towelettes and all these things like there's there's some thing about that which is off you know Mm -hmm. um i don't know what it is yet but so that's just really interesting like after we've had all this setup to then get Mm -hmm. it and have him be you know absolutely mundane um (laughs) yep and you know and i'm sure now i don't know whether that means he literally is something else like whether he could be a a demon and we don't know it or whatever he could just be human but i'm sure there's some sort of uh evil which is lurking underneath you know underneath this kind of like determinedly uh pristine surface mm-hmm. so yeah 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 i don't know well and pristine right yeah the 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 cleansing yeah the the cleanliness he definitely uh yeah, he's an avid hand washer. He is, yeah. Um, <laughs> moist talent. Moist talent. Um, uh, and and interesting his discussion with Trick at the end. Um, yeah. That you're not, you know. Trick says, "What if I don't want to be part of the team?" And he says, and he kind of laughs and says, "Oh, that won't be an issue." And I'm not sure yet what he means by that. I mean, does that mean? Trick doesn't have a choice and he's, you know, going to be forced into this or does he have 
some bit of information that is going to right. entice Trick onto his side. You know, why why does he feel sure that not that he can convince Trick to change his mind, but that this isn't even an issue. Um, yeah. That is interesting. And you get that kind of ambivalence from Trick at the end that you're not quite sure how Trick feels about this. You know, he is sort of intrigued by it, but also you can sense his reluctance. Um, mm. That he, it seems like if he allies with him, it's going to be at least partly against his will. So it'll be interesting to see what kinds of cards does the the mayor have up his sleeve. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, and it's, Right. And and there is that ambiguity there. And we've already seen that the mayor can have Trick dragged into his office, yeah. you know, like yeah. it and and leaves him alone like the, you know, the mayor's in there alone with Trick. He's not scared that he's a vampire in any way, you know, like. So. Yeah. What does that mean? Does that mean that the mayor is something other than human mm. too, or what? What exactly? Like, why is he not? Um, yeah, you know, more. You know, what power does he have, and and or not have, or or mm-hmm. we don't know at this point. Yeah. So, yeah, and there's that one reference too to that it being election year or something like that. So there's right there's. A sense of something, you know, and you know he doesn't, he doesn't mean that. Like the the something like that means it's not that. But um, <laughs> but there's something coming that there's some, you know, something in the air which is looming that he's, as a politician, you know, would gather, you know, uh, attendants around him to to run his campaign so the mayor is sort of recruiting his troops for some you know conflict which might be coming his way you know yeah yeah um and you know and trick seems like the guy um while he's having apparently other nefarious characters sort of kicked out of Sunnydale like you get the idea that he has his his guys sort of reporting to him on suspicious activity right um right so on the one hand he's sort of maintaining you know keeping the the monsters out of Sunnydale um but on the other hand I guess if he sees he's he's not beyond recruiting them for his assistance if he feels like they could be useful right right so yeah 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 he 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 definitely seems well he he, yeah he's he's very picky it seems about who he wants around him yeah yeah so yeah anyway well all right so lots of questions we'll see more yes both both of them um oh where do we go from here so Anything else, I guess, we kind of circuitously went away from Buffy, but any anything else about her or Cordelia or their situation? Um, well, the other stuff with Buffy uh, would be her sort of 
uh, her gentlemanly friends. Um, she's <laughs> just got a couple of them now. Yeah. Um, well, at the beginning of the episode, she Well, does. yeah, maybe not <laughs> anymore. So, okay, let's start with Scott then. So, um, is this the last we see of Scott? And if you can't tell me, say you can't tell me, and I'll just have um, to wait and see. It's his last notable appearance. I really? can't say okay. that. I can't say that we we don't see him ever again. Ever again. Right, right. But I, yeah, there's. I don't remember him. This is pretty much it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. All right. That's yeah, kind of a it, bummer. Um. Yeah. Were you hoping there? Well. I mean, his last name is Hope. Yeah, his last name is Hope. Um, I don't know that I. I'm attached enough to Scott to really like say that I was rooting for them as a couple in particular, but mm. I'm not quite sure. I, I was expecting him to be around for longer because I'm not quite sure yet what it did for the story other than to have Buffy, mm. I guess having Buffy date somebody else other than Angel, you know, but it, it seemed like, he wasn't just like a generic date that she went on that it was like a recurring person that we were starting to get to know. So I'm a little bit surprised that it's not going to go further. Um, but no, that's okay. Well, what do you, so what do you think of his sort of explanation? Cause he, he says to her, um, before, before we were going out, you seem so full of life, like a force, force of nature. And now you seem kind of distracted all the time. Mm. Um, any, any thoughts there? Like what? Well, yeah. I mean, I think, I think Buffy, uh, is not learning from the lesson of Pete and Debbie <laughs> as much as I would like. And I mean, it seems like the implication is you've been distracted since Angel came back, even though Scott doesn't know about Angel, like that seems to be the catalyst, um, right. you know, and, and maybe not, maybe, maybe Buffy was always going to be a disappointment for him because she has this other life. Um, but it seems like the reason for the distraction is these conflicted feelings, um, because she's keeping the secret and taking care of Angel on the sly. Um, and and two again we're back to this uh thing of them of her not sharing you know and 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 it seems like it's led to you know it's or at least contributed to this breakup with Scott um that she is distracted and he has at least a sense that she's not totally into this or she's not you know, as invested as she could be, or maybe she's, you know, he can tell that she would rather be somewhere else. So, um, you know, and that's kind of a bummer for their relationship. It's going to be a bigger bummer if it, you know, interrupts her relationships with Giles or with Willow or whatever. Um, mm. And again, you know, she's afraid to tell them because they won't understand and they'll send him away or she doesn't know what they'll do. But 
she yeah. isn't willing to give them the benefit of the doubt about that. Um, right. Yeah, she's she seems, making a lot of the same mistakes. <laughs> she is. She is. Um, so yeah. yeah, and so it's already had a consequence. I mean, you know, Scott does break up with her. So what other consequences might it lead to? I guess we'll wait and see. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think you're right. And I think I think the sense that you're getting is is exactly the sense we're supposed to about Scott, is that we did expect this to go longer because he is, well, yeah. he's a nice guy mm. um, and he's a normal guy. And Buffy even says, that's what I need, right? I need someone who's dependable yeah. right before and he it breaks cuts up with her. to him breaking up with her, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and he's a solid guy is what she says. Mm. And uh that he makes her happy but it's interesting because when you look at the times that she's with him mm. she doesn't seem that way and and mm-hmm. and i he she really is distracted and so mm. if you go go back to like the first episode where they're you know faith hope and trick where yeah. you know they're starting to get to know each other and there's like the incident with the ring which mm. we both agreed was really kind of weird but um you know, presumably they go to the Buster Keaton right. thing that weekend. Then the next episode we see them, they're kind of together, you know, and they're kind of dating now and they kiss and that's cool. And then now, you know, again, at the beginning of this episode, they're kissing. But, but now we know that Angel's back and yeah. Buffy leaves Scott mm, at the bronze, right? right? To go. Right, she blows him off to go. She says she's tired and doesn't feel like hanging out. And then goes and right. sees Angel. <laughs> goes to see Angel. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a valid complaint. Yeah. And, like, yeah. like, I think to his credit, he doesn't blame her for anything. Yeah. Like, he's, he's not, like, accusing her of seeing someone else, which is kind of true. <laughs> right. He kind of is. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, not necessarily romantically, but there is definitely a secret there, and it's an old romance that, Mm. um, you know, is it so like, he's he's no blame. It's just this, you seem distracted and that's not what I'm looking for. And, um, you know, I don't, you know, maybe, maybe he's not giving her enough of a chance, but at the same time, it's, it's hard to say, you know, it's a budding relationship. Lots of budding relationships don't last. You know, there are a lot of people who go out for a week or two in high school with someone and realize this isn't going to work out and good for them for realizing that at the time, you know, you know, it's, it's better to realize that sooner than later. Um, but from Buffy's side too, like, and we, yeah, we've talked about like the fact that she doesn't tell people things or or just generally not just her but others as well Mm -hmm. who are keeping secrets and we'll get to other secrets being kept in this episode yeah um you know in a minute but yeah speaking of other secrets that get people into trouble (laughs) yeah the uh you know so the idea i'm not sure that she's that far off because you know well i don't know because on the one hand she's already admitted that the spell worked. So to say that Giles and Willow and the others wouldn't understand mm. isn't giving them enough credit. Yeah. I don't think yeah, on the I one hand, so too. Um, but on the other, on the other hand, 
we also did get Giles saying that someone who has been in a hell dimension for, in their time, hundreds of years, yeah. would yeah. not necessarily be a sane person or someone who could be trustworthy or whatever. So, and the fact that, you know, the last time Giles and Angel saw each other, Angel was torturing him. You know, there's like that. there's that yeah. aspect yeah. of it too. So, um, you know, a lot of things to consider there. And, and you, I, yes, we can sit back and say, you know, really Buffy should be telling them about this. But on the other hand, you can sort of understand why she's not. Um, and Scott yeah, no, specifically. I think, I think you can understand. It's definitely sympathetic. The, I think what's lurking underneath is whether or not those things are the same kinds of excuses that Debbie would use as to why she doesn't tell on Pete. Totally understandable. Like, if she really loves him, she doesn't want him to go to jail. She doesn't want him to get locked up. You can understand why she feels that way. But are those still excuses um, right. And I think, yeah, no, and, and, I, I, and I don't know that we know right now where I think we're meant to be having those questions about Buffy, that when does right. it become a motivation of love and protection? And when does it become an excuse not to confront something? So, right, um, right. and, uh, and right. to what extent can she rely on her friends? Um, yeah. And I think those are open ended questions. But yeah. we're at least, uh, I think, I'm having them at this stage that I'm not totally, even though I can understand where she's coming from, I'm not sure that I'm comfortable with yeah. what she with, with where it is at this point. It's a little, after, after the last episode with that scene of, you know, Debbie and Pete, you know, dead and, and, and you know, Angel embracing Buffy for protection that makes me a little unnerved to see her assuming that role again of the the comforter and the protector um hmm. it's a um, little it's a little unnerving is all the other thing I would I would say is you know it's interesting that you know Scott's been around for a few weeks now and doesn't know like he hasn't learned about sort of what Buffy is or does yeah, or anything. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, the only real contrast we can have, because Angel knew before they were dating or anything, obviously. Yeah. Like, Angel knew from the very beginning. The only other real example we have to compare that to is um, season one, episode five, Never Kill a Boy on the First Date. Right. Where Buffy does bring a date. Now, granted, she doesn't exactly tell him all about what's going on and you know kid ends up being killed so yes. um you know like that's not happening with scott but is that because she's not telling him about it and dragging him into her world kind of thing yeah. you know like like i don't know but that's also you know it becomes that oh you know you seem so full of life like a force of nature well you know if you knew what she was doing at night, you might still feel yeah. that way. But because you don't, you don't get to see that side of her. And it's it's her keeping that from him. And as much as she can assure him that things are going to change or try to assure him of yeah. that, you know, 
she can't really she can't, let him yeah, in yeah. yet at this point yeah, anyway. Yeah. Um, so. Well, and, she, and she, I mean, she can, not to say Buffy can't ever change, but Buffy's distractions are not going to go away. That isn't right, something that right. she we can know change. That. Yeah, right. yeah, 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 absolutely. Right, her yeah, distractions, so, it's, just, it's just how much is she going to let him in on yeah, what those distractions yeah. are and right and not just him but the others as well and and so yeah and so and so maybe that kind of is scott's purpose maybe it's it's uh fitting that he should that we should be left a little unsatisfied by him because he was this kind of hope for something better or a promise of something which doesn't really go anywhere you know that it he wasn't just it wouldn't have that same impact if he was just some generic date it it for it to feel like a loss he has to have potential you know which doesn't get realized so well and i think when i think about it that way i kind of feel like i like that a little bit more and and i think in the context of this episode where we get buffy talking about wanting to have something beyond just being a slayer yeah that becomes an even more sort of yeah uh significant yeah idea um yeah that, that he's that sort of in, the emblem of that or or one of several you know i mean yeah, the the, yeah. the homecoming or at least one of two the homecoming the queen, homecoming queen is the other you yeah, know being yeah. another perhaps mm-hmm. um although i would say i mean yeah, I mean Scott's been around a few episodes now, so it's not like it's just uh for this purpose. But I think you're right. I think his his last name does imply that there is hope for a different path. Mm. And this is sort of Buffy choosing by not choosing, you know, to to go down that path. Like she's she's avoiding going down that path and ends up losing the ability to travel it, so to speak. Yeah. Um not to extend that metaphor too much longer. <laughs> anyway, um, we need to we, talk about Xander. I was and just going to say last couple minutes. Yeah, I was just going to say that. So go go ahead. What are your thoughts on Willow and Xander? Well, oh well, well, Willow and Xander. <laughs> um, <laughs> well. You asked me. Well, you asked me before we started whether I saw that coming, and. I feel like once they got to that scene where they're trying on clothes for each other, then I could mm-hmm. kind of feel, you know, the, the, the tension building and kind of started to sense it coming. But definitely I haven't felt it like leading up to this in the season. I think mm-hmm. because we've known for so long that Willow has this sort of unrequited crush and we've known equally long that Xander doesn't reciprocate, or at least hasn't up until this point. Um, it was just something you took for granted. Like, okay, every so often you're going to get the scene where Willow, you know, it, 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 where they're a little bit awkward, you know, where they have a little bit of romantic tension and then Xander deflects it and nothing happens. Like, you kind of get used to that being... an expected thing every so often so then Mm -hmm. to have it build and build and build and then finally culminate you know in actually kissing each other it like it wasn't 
expected. You know, certainly yeah. for me coming up, I wasn't saying even Xander and Cordy, I felt like over a couple episodes you were waiting for it. Um, whereas I didn't feel like it <laughs> with this as much. Right. Um, right. But yeah. And of course, of course. It would, they would do it just when they both have other partners and have happy relationships, you know, that they wait until they have, you know, what it is they want and then go ahead and, you know, and I guess that's where right back to Xander's whole, you don't see what's right in front of you thing that, you know, they, after all this time of longing for, you know, steady relationships they finally have them and then they go and you know do this yeah. when they could have been doing this from day one you know they could right. have done this back in season one and been a couple but no they wait two seasons until they already <laughs> have other partners and right. then they go and have their sort of romantic right. moment so well yeah and that's kind what of interesting that's what Xander says sort of in a way, right? It's like, you know, I, I thought being a senior at last and having a yeah. girlfriend at last would be a good thing. Shouldn't that be a yeah, good thing? Yeah. Um, no, it's, you know, it's like, like there's that element of sabotaging your own happiness or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And of course it affects everything else that they do. Yeah. Um, well, and, right, and I totally, when Willow talks about, we overcompensated and we spun yeah. the whole group dynamic out of orbit. <laughs> I thought of the soul triptych right away that yep. there's a natural order to things and they've, they've messed with the hierarchy and the balance. And because of that, Buffy and Cordy are in trouble, you know? <laughs> I love, I love how slippery her slope is there. Yeah. I'm not a friend. I'm a rabid dog who be, should be shot. And then like suddenly like, fire and brimstone meteors coming at yeah, the earth yeah. it's like <laughs> where did where did we get uh yeah all these consequences from well, one little kiss but that's kind of the idea though is that is that they have <laughs> a proper and i'm and i don't say this a proper in the sense of like you know that uh, you know that willow and xander's romantic relationships are defined by their relationship to Buffy. That's not really what I mean, but that, you know, it is about a group dynamic and it is about, you know, a, an effective sort of hierarchy, I guess, you know, without being too sort of elitist about it, you know, that they have a sense that they've betrayed the group in some way. Mm -hmm. And that mm -hmm. as a consequence, People are in danger. Well, and they don't know that yet, but we know it. You know, we know that that by the time Buffy and Willow are, or uh, Buffy and Cordy are in the cabin, this is all, you know, now Slayerfest would still have happened, but Faith might have been there if, um, or the whole group might have been there together. You know, things might have been different if this whole scenario hadn't come to be because of willow and xander you know sneaking around and overcompensating and again not being honest and all these things so you know we laugh about fire and meteors but there is a very real danger which comes out of this you know which kind of points to the way in which their relationships are integral to the their sort of 
safety, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. <laughs> and we will see what, if any, consequences there are. Well, there have to be some. There has to. Hmm. Yeah. I. It's just a matter of how and when. <laughs> you know. I, I stand by my phrase. Yes. Yes. I'm sure. But you, I, I think Cordy is going to find out about this. Because, of course, we forgot to mention, of course, then you also get Cordy in the cabin pondering over whether she might love Xander. Right. Right. You know. Right. Um, yeah, no, that's that's clearly significant given the cheating, basically. Yeah. yeah. Um not to mince. Yeah. Words. And uh, I like her line about he sort of grows on you like a chia pet. Yeah. Yeah. Um anyway, well, since we can't learn more now, I guess that'll have to wait until next okay. week. And uh yeah, I don't know. So I I don't know if you want to give a preview for Doctor Who, but I'll just say our next Buffy episode is is a f- kind of a fun one. So is it good? Yeah, yeah. Uh, fun anyway. is good. Uh, I mean, Doctor Who. We pick up where we left off. Kind, I guess. kind of. Although I did say that um, the Utopia, even though it does have a cliffhanger, it it also in some ways is very separate to, um, to the the next one. Uh, so. It it's continuation, but uh, with with like a change of <laughs> stuff. Oh, excuse so me. okay. <laughs> so yeah. Well, I guess we'll talk about that next week. All right. See you then.